Good morning. Today we're going to read from the book of John chapter 11 verses 1 to 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Mar Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. John chapter 11, verses 1 to 44. All right. Thank you, Angel. What a great, a great reading as we get ready for, as we celebrate, not get ready for anymore, as we're celebrating Easter. And we are going to, yep, that's all set. Um, and just a quick reminder, we're going to do sermon Q&A after the sermon today. So if you have any questions about the sermon as we go through it, uh, feel free to send those questions to Les on Zoom chat, and he will be able to lead us in a time of Q&A after the sermon ends. Um, so yeah, over the past several weeks, as we prepared for Easter during this Lent season, we've been looking at the I am statements of Jesus in the book of John. So we started this series with an intro where we looked at John chapter eight, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And we talked about how by making that statement, Jesus was claiming the special name of God from the Old Testament for himself. He was saying that he was God. And then over the past several weeks, we've seen Jesus claim again and again that all our deepest longings and desires and needs in life can only be satisfied in and through him. So he said things like, I am the bread of life claiming that only he can satisfy the deep hunger and longing of our souls. He said, I am the light of the world. He was claiming that only he can show us the right way to live and go in this world. He said, I am the good shepherd and I am the door of the sheep. He claimed that only he can lead us properly in this world that seeks to lead us astray. He said, I'm the vine. He claimed that true life comes only from being connected to him. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He claimed that access to God can only be found through him. And you may or may not buy the claim that Jesus is able to offer us everything he claims to be able to offer us throughout these passages. But today, the passage we're looking at, he's making another really big claim. This is the seventh I am statement we're looking at in the series. And this one may be the hardest of all for us to accept. He says in today's passage, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says that this means him being the resurrection and the life means anyone who believes in him will never die. 
Now, that's a really big claim. It's a big enough claim that anyone who can actually give what Jesus is offering here has to be God. By claiming this power, Jesus is claiming that he is God in human flesh. And in the first week of this series, we said, if someone claims they're God, there's really only three options. Option one, that person is a liar. They know that what they're saying isn't true, but they're trying to trick us. Option two, that person is a lunatic. They genuinely believe what they're saying is true, but they believe it because they've just lost touch with reality. And option three is that person is the Lord, that as, as improbable as it may seem, they are exactly who they say they are. And I realize in our modern world where we feel like we know better than people did in the past, we have science now, we know that people stay dead once they die, they don't come back to life. It may be easy for many people in our world to just write off option three as impossible and lean towards option one or two. Jesus can't be God. He either he's a liar or he's a crazy man. And yet the reason that John recorded this claim for us in the Bible is because he believed everything Jesus was claiming for himself in this statement when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life is absolutely true. So today we're going to examine this claim from Jesus that he can do what only God can do. And we're going to see whether his claims hold up. And what we'll see as we look at this is that Jesus is who he claims to be. He is God in human flesh. And we're going to look at this through three questions. First, what does Jesus claim? Second, can he do what he claims? And third, how do we get what he offers? So let's pray and then we'll look at these questions together. Father, we thank you for Easter, for this chance to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead together. And we pray that as we look at your word right now and at Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life, that you would be helping us to see truth. You would help us to believe it and, and to know you more deeply and love you more deeply. And in Jesus' name, amen. So our first question today, what does Jesus claim? And the big claim that Jesus makes in this passage that we're going to dig into and look at today, it's found in verses 25 and 26. So for a little context, Jesus, his friend Lazarus, has been sick. Lazarus' sisters send a message to Jesus saying, hey, you know, you're a famous healer and miracle worker. Our brother is sick. Please come heal him. But Jesus waits. He, he delays where he is. And by the time he arrives at their house, it's far too late. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Jesus is now walking into a funeral. And as Jesus arrives, Lazarus's sister Martha comes out to meet Jesus. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And as Jesus talks to her, he tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And like I said, at first glance, what Jesus is saying here probably appears ridiculous to many people. Like whoever believes in Jesus will never die. Really? Like, I don't know the last time you checked, but the last time I looked at statistics, the most reliable statistic out there is one out of one people die. Like everyone dies. So how can Jesus claim that anyone who believes in him will never die. It just seems at face value like he's saying something 
ridiculous. But when we look closer, we actually see the claim he's making is different than it appears to be at first glance. Did you notice what he said there? He said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus acknowledges here, the people who trust in him may die. He's not saying trusting in him is this key to living forever here and now, this, this universal elixir that heals cancer and prevents heart disease. No, he's saying that he offers a special type of life, a life so powerful that it transcends death, a type of life so powerful that even death cannot extinguish it. And on one level, I think people in our world may struggle to wrap our heads around an idea like this because we've been so trained to look at the world biologically and scientifically. Like life means that my heart is pumping blood. My lungs are breathing air. My brain is working. If those things are happening, I'm alive. But on another level, I think the idea that, that life is more than just being physically alive is one that's widespread in our culture. Have any of you ever seen the movie Braveheart? A couple of you, yeah? So there's this line in the movie Brave, Braveheart where William Wallace says, every man dies, not every man really lives. And it looks like a couple of you have seen Braveheart. Many probably haven't. Braveheart, it's the story of a man named William Wallace. He was a Scottish leader, military leader in the 1200s who led his people in the fight for independence against England. He, to him, being able to live as a free man being free from the tyranny of the English king's rule was what it meant to really live. And the first time I ever saw Braveheart and, and I heard that line, every man dies, but not every man really lives. My friends and I, we all looked at each other and we were like, wow, that's deep. There was something in what he said that it resonated with us. We all understood right away. There's a kind of living that's not really living. Now, what does he mean when he says that? that what was it about what he said that resonates so deeply with my friends and me? Well, he's saying there's this real life that makes physical life worth living. And it's possible to have physical life without experiencing that real life. But that real life, it's so great. It's so powerful. It's so amazing to experience. And if you can have that real life, even for a moment, if you can just experience it for a moment, it's worth it to sacrifice anything you have, even your physical life itself to get that experience of real, true life. For William Wallace to be, to really live meant to be free. For you, it, it may be being free. It may be something else. But part of the reason that Braveheart was, was very popular when it came out was because that desire for something more, something deeper in life that, that you're willing to sacrifice for and fight for to have real life it's something that so many people in our world resonated with. I mean, any adult, probably most teenagers, know that feeling of going through your day, feeling like you're just going through the motions, right? Has, has you felt that before? Like your heart is pumping, you're physically alive, but when you think about what it means or what it would look like for you to live life to the full, and then you compare that against what you're doing today, what you're doing isn't anywhere near the picture that comes to mind of living life to the full. And many days, probably most days, we're blissfully ignorant of that disconnect. But every now and then, we realize, like, there's, there's something out there that's real life, true life, that I feel like I should be living, and I'm, I'm not. 
And on the days where we realize that we're filled with this discontent and this longing and desire to have that abundant life, because somewhere down deep, we know we're supposed to live that life and we're not. And when Jesus promises us life here, that type of life, that real life that we all crave, that's what he's promising us. We actually see this a few chapters later in John chapter 17, verse three, Jesus gives us his definition of life. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He's not saying that those who trust in him get some supernatural life support machine that just keeps our hearts beating forever here and now. No, he's saying those who trust in him get access to the real true life that we're all meant to live. Those who trust in Jesus get access to the true life of knowing the true God. And that life is a life so powerful that even death can't extinguish it. Because Jesus says he's the resurrection. Resurrection means coming back from death to life. Jesus isn't saying those who trust in him will have our lives just keep going on and on and on and on forever here and now. No. But he is saying that for those who trust in him and find true life in him, death never has the last word. That's what Easter is all about, that death never has the last word. For those who have trust in Jesus, we've gained access to a life that's stronger and more powerful than death. And so death doesn't get the last word. Instead, resurrection, life after death. And that doesn't mean us floating on clouds as spirits, but it means true life with new bodies in a new world. That gets the last word. And again, like I said, Jesus is making some huge claims here. Big enough claims that only someone who is God could possibly have the power to come through on those claims. And that brings us to our second question. Can Jesus do what he claims? I mean, how do you even test that, right? Like, how would you determine whether someone can give this type of life that transcends death? Maybe you could do a survey and talk to people who trust in Jesus and talk to people who don't trust in Jesus and see if the people who say they trust in Jesus live fuller lives than the people who don't say they trust in him. Do you think that might work? I mean, it might help, but it has some big limitations, right? Like, how can you tell whether the people who say they're following Jesus are actually following him properly? Maybe they're not getting the right results, but it's because they're not doing things properly like they're supposed to be. Or like what criteria even determines whether someone has a full life or a more full life than someone else? You know, it's a quite limited way of, of testing whether this claim is true. And given those limitations, this may surprise you, but did you know Jesus actually suggested a test like this at one point? In John chapter 13, 35, he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus expected people who trust in him will be transformed and live life differently. They'll have a fuller life than those who don't trust in him. And the picture that Jesus gave us of what it means to live a fulfilled life, the one that he wanted us to use in this test, is whether we love one another. Not in the Hollywood romantic sort of love where I just need to find the person I love and get them to be mine. 
but in a sacrificial serving kind of way that's willing to actually lower myself and serve others for their good. If you had to determine whether someone was living a fulfilled life, is that the metric you would have chosen to measure? Would you have said, let's, let's measure how well they love? It's a good one, isn't it? And Jesus gave us that test. It's a good test. But even that test that Jesus gave to us has a huge limitation. Because even if you did all these interviews, even if you studied people, you found that Jesus truly does help people to live better, fuller, more loving lives. That, that system of asking and interviewing and questioning can't determine whether that life that they have extends beyond death. Like if trusting in Jesus is something that makes our lives better here and now, but then we die like everyone else and that's it, why does it matter? Like maybe Jesus works for some people to make them feel more fulfilled and drugs or sex works for other people. Maybe it's money or success or grades that make you feel fulfilled. At the end of the day, if we're all going to end up buried six feet under the ground together forever and that's it, why does it matter which coping mechanisms we use to get through today? Because if this life is all there is, that's ultimately what these things are. They're coping mechanisms. They're tools to make the burden of life a little less heavy for us. To determine whether Jesus can really do what he says he can do, we need proof that his power extends beyond the grave. If Jesus could somehow demonstrate tangibly that his power is able to overcome the grave, then we have valid grounds for believing what he says about being able to give life that transcends death and him being able to raise us from death. And this is why the Bible tells its story as a story, not just a collection of statements and teachings like the Analects of Confucius. Because if someone says, I have the power to give life that transcends death, them saying that, it's one thing, but to see them have that power to transcend death, to see them do things in the real world that actually transcend death, that gives a weight to their teaching that the teaching alone couldn't carry otherwise. So do you remember where we said Jesus is when he makes this claim that he is the resurrection and the life? He's at a funeral. And he's speaking to the bereaved sister. This idea that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, it's not something that arises out of a vacuum. It's spoken to a real person facing real struggles in the midst of a real situation that will put it almost immediately to the test. Because think about this. We were at a funeral a couple of weeks ago because Justine's grandmother died. If you're at a funeral and someone comes to you at this funeral and says, I have the power to give life that transcends death, but then the funeral happens and it ends and they leave and the dead person is still dead and you just have to get back to your daily life. Their words are not going to comfort you. Like you're going to see what they said as like a cruel joke, their way of like mocking you and kicking you while you're down. You might see it as just someone being incredibly insensitive and not knowing how to read the room properly but you're never going to walk away and find hope and encouragement from reflecting on their words. You want to just forget about them. That's why we need the rest of the story, because what does Jesus do here? He says these words, but then he ends the funeral. 
He has them open the tomb. He calls for the dead man to come out of the tomb and the dead man walks out alive. You want proof that Jesus has power to give life that transcends death. What better proof than he give than proving tangibly that he has power over death by bringing someone back from death to life? That's quite the proof, right? If Jesus has power to end death by speaking a word, then surely he must have power to give life that transcends death. And I realize if you're a more skeptical person, you might be thinking, yeah, but I mean, Eric, they didn't have science back then like we do today. Maybe they were just gullible. Maybe they were just tricked. Maybe, maybe they thought they saw a miracle when they didn't really. But people back then, they knew how life worked. They knew that dead people don't come back to life. I mean, at the start of the passage in verse 23, Jesus says to the sister, your brother will rise again. She doesn't say, oh, of course, I know you're going to do a miracle and bring him back. No, he was dead and gone. And people who are dead and gone don't come back. And people back then knew that. This man had been in the tomb for four days. His body had started to decompose. If you think Jesus was maybe using some type of deception to try to trick people, remember, there was a crowd of people who came from all over that were watching. Lots of eyewitnesses that could point out if something shady was going on. These people weren't gullible. They weren't expecting the funeral to end with a dead man walking out of the tomb because that doesn't happen. The reason this event is included in the Bible is because it was so shocking to them because none of them had ever seen or heard of anything like it before. They weren't gullible. They weren't easily tricked. They were shocked and amazed by the power of Jesus to conquer death. And you may also be thinking, wait a second, Eric, like Lazarus came back to life, but he's not still alive now. How powerful is Jesus really? And first off, like that's still more powerful than my brain has the ability to wrap itself around. The ability to speak a word and bring a dead guy walking out of his tomb, that's crazy powerful. But I mean, if you can wrap your head around that kind of power and you still feel like that's not enough, that's why the story of the Bible and the story of Jesus' life continues even after Lazarus raises from the dead. Because after this happens, the Jewish religious leaders, they feel threatened by Jesus. Because I mean, Lots of people are following him and they think that he can bring people back from the dead. That's a threat to your power, right? And so these Jewish religious leaders, they want Jesus dead. So they turn the people against him. They get him killed. And on the third day, Easter Sunday, Jesus himself rose again. That's why we celebrate Easter today. Because the Bible teaches that by raising from the dead, Jesus conquered the power of death once and for all. He has defeated its power by rising back to life. He now reigns over the universe from his throne, waiting for the day where he will put death to death once for all. There's a a famous poem by a guy named John Donne called Death Be Not Proud. And the the closing line is great. He says, death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Because Jesus rose from the grave because of Easter, death's defeat is sealed once and for all. And now we just wait for the day when death's defeat becomes our lived reality. So it's not only the resurrection of Lazarus, but the resurrection of Jesus himself is the ultimate proof that Jesus has the power to give life 
that can endure through even death. And someone who has that kind of power, who can give life to others, who can conquer death himself, can't be anyone but God. And if Jesus is really God, then he has the power to give us not only physical, biological life, but that true life, the real life that William Wallace was talking about, that we all long for and desire. And he can give it to us, but not everyone has that life. Which brings us to our final question today. How do we get what he offers? How do we get this real life that Jesus offers us? And if you look back at the passage, he actually tells us a couple times. So look at the first big claim we looked at that Jesus makes about himself in this passage in verses 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So what's the key that he mentions that unlocks access to this life? He mentioned it three times in the passage. Did you catch it? If not, that's okay, because he comes back to it again in verse 40. Now they're standing at the tomb. And Jesus says, roll away the stone, open up the tomb, which like you and I know how the story ends. If you're at a funeral and someone says to open the tomb so they have access to the body, like that's weird. That's borderline creepy. Maybe it crosses that border. That's just creepy, right? Under no normal social protocol, is it okay to do that at a, at a funeral? And the dead guy's sister points this out. She's like, hey, Jesus, like he's been dead for four days. It's going to smell in there, which I think is probably the most tactful way possible of saying no without making a big scene. But look how Jesus responds to her. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What's the key? What is it that Martha needs if she's going to see this miracle working, abundant life that Jesus promises and offers to her? She needs to believe. And notice that belief includes action here. In verse 27, when Jesus tells her, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he says, do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. Now, that's a huge statement of belief. She literally says she believes Jesus is God's son. He didn't say anything about himself being God's son here. She just realizes if what he's saying is true, that also must be true. And so she makes the connection. Jesus is God's son. But even that belief and that acknowledgement of her belief in this final moment at the tomb, it's not enough. She needs something more. Because at the tomb, when Jesus says, take away the stone from the tomb, and she freaks out because it's going to smell really bad. And it's just a weird thing to do. Jesus reminds her, remember what I said, you have to believe. But at this point, saying she believes isn't enough unless it comes with an action. And how do we know in that moment she really believes that Jesus has the power to give life like he says he can? You know how we know? Because she lets them open the tomb. 
We may not realize it because the story just sort of moves right past it, but that's a huge act of faith. It's, it's Martha turning her belief into action. Think about it. If you're Martha, you have all your close friends, probably some not so close friends around watching. And a guy comes up and he says, open your brother's tomb. I'm going to bring him back to life. That just puts you in a really awkward position. If you dig up the tomb and the story ends any other way besides your brother being alive again, you're going to be the butt of everyone's jokes for a really long time. But Martha knows Jesus. And because she knows him, she believes that he can do what he says he can do. So she turns her belief into action. She lets them open the tomb. And that believing action is rewarded with her brother being brought back to life. Belief is the key that accesses the life-giving power that Jesus offers us. But belief isn't just intellectually saying, yes, I, I agree with that as an idea. True belief always leads to action. It was true for Martha then, it's true for us now. So what does believing action look like in our lives? Well, believing action is anything we do in obedience to Jesus because we love and trust him. And it often doesn't make sense to the surrounding world. Let me say that again. Believing action is anything we do in obedience to Jesus because we love and trust him. And it often doesn't make sense to the surrounding world. So there's two key elements here. First, it's something we do in obedience to Jesus because we love and trust him. Like there are plenty of people who do things that don't make sense to the surrounding world and have nothing to do with Jesus. Like I like sports. There was a fan at a basketball game the other day who tried to glue herself to the court in protest. Like that's weird. That doesn't make sense to me as a surrounding world member. That doesn't really have anything to do with Jesus, right? That's just someone being weird. And just being weird or odd for the sake of being weird or odd, that's not belief. It's just being weird. Being weird is not in and of itself believing action. True believing action is something we do because Jesus calls us to do it and we're acting in obedience and trust to him. But second, believing obedience often doesn't make sense to the world around us. Sometimes it does. Like the Bible commands us, to do jobs and work so we can have money to provide for our families. My guess is that most of my and your non-Christian friends do that. And that makes sense to them. Working, doing a job so I can provide for my family. That's a good thing to do. Everyone more or less agrees on that. And so as Christians, if we're working hard to provide for our families as part of our believing obedience to Jesus, that makes sense to the world around us. But the Bible also commands Christians to take that a step further. It tells us to work hard so we'll have money to share with others around us who are in need. Now, if if you want a non-Christian friend to look at you like you have two heads, just tell them, I work really hard so I can give away what I earn. That doesn't make sense to the world around us, but it's also part of believing obedience. It's something Jesus calls us and commands us to do. And so on a day-to-day basis, what does it look like for us to live lives of believing obedience in Jesus? Well, I mean, the easy starting point, working so that we can provide for our families and being generous. That doesn't mean necessarily that you need an income paying job. If you're a stay-at-home mom, that's an incredibly valuable, important job 
um, that's providing for and taking care of your family. Um, but working isn't all that it looks like. It means doing the things that we do each day in a way that's seeking to honor God. It could be something like refusing to make easy money in business by cheating and taking advantage of vulnerable people around us. You know, like how many of us would, would feel comfortable at the office, going up to the water cooler and telling our coworker like, hey, I had a chance to do this deal. It would have made a ton of money for the company, but it would have meant that I had to cheat the other guy out of what he thought the deal was actually going to be. So I didn't do it. You know, in business school, they force everyone to go through business ethics class. But I think if you told people in your company that you had done this, that you passed up an opportunity to make lots of money because it wasn't right, the looks you would get from telling them that would tell you how deeply business ethics class had actually sunk in for them. When we live out our belief in Jesus, we're often going to look weird to the world around us. And it's not just a work thing. It, it plays out in every part of our lives. How do we interact with our families? You know, what if we actually prioritize time with family in a way that hurts our careers, but is good for our kids or our spouse and our, our marriage? Believing action plays out in how we prioritize our time how we choose who to spend time with, how we live out our sexuality, every part of our lives. Believing action is anything we do because we love and trust Jesus and it often doesn't make sense to the world. But belief unlocks our access to Jesus' life-giving power. A lot of the times the things he calls us to do, they won't even make sense to us at first glance. But our trust and obedience is what he uses to unlock our access to this life-giving power in our lives. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He proves it by raising Lazarus from the dead. He proves it by raising himself from the dead. Death is conquered. Easter means that Jesus is alive. Death is conquered. God can surprise us. He has amazing blessings that he wants to give us. Jesus is who he says he is. And the key to receiving these surprises and these blessings is our belief. So I want to invite you today, if you haven't believed in Jesus before, to believe in him. If you have believed in Jesus before, to continue believing and, and continue trusting him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came and lived on earth, that you didn't just tell us, but you showed us tangibly what it means for you to be the resurrection and the life. We thank you that you proved it by raising Lazarus from the dead and by raising from the dead yourself that death is now conquered and defeated. God, I pray that you would help us to believe. God, I think for many of us, we would, we would say right now, I believe, but help my unbelief. Strengthen me and give me more faith in you, more obedience and trust in you each day. Teach us to love you more in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to have a, a sermon Q&A time now. So if you have any questions about anything that was discussed in the sermon, uh, you can go ahead and message them to Les on the Zoom chat. And we'll give you a few seconds to do that. And then uh, Les will lead us in a discussion time in just a minute.
okay. We'll just wait a few more seconds if any of you guys have questions. Okay, looks like, uh, okay, there's still a question coming and we'll just wait. Okay, we'll start with the first question uh, today. Is there a way, uh, Eric, is there a way to show people that the Christian, that Christian living is not an awkward way of living, but the right way to live? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think like on some level, it, it probably is awkward actually. Um, being right and being awkward are not always mutually exclusive. Um, I, I mean, just think about Christian sexuality. If you're obeying God and not sleeping with people you're dating before you get married to them, that's going to be awkward to the world around you. They're gonna, they're gonna think that that's awkward, um, but it's the right way to live. And so I think, I think the question isn't necessarily how do we show them that it's not awkward, but more how do we show them that it's right. If you think back to what Jesus said about, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. I think if if you look at the world around us, the experience of being deeply loved by someone in a, in a sacrificial way where they helped you and did things for your good, even though there was no benefit in it for them, that's a really rare experience in our world. And so I think, um, you know, just for people to be able to have that experience because we sacrificially love them, that's huge. And there probably will be times where it's a little bit awkward, but that doesn't mean it's not right. Thanks, Eric. Um, we'll just give it a couple more seconds if any of you have more questions. Next question is, is um, why did Jesus weep? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and there's some debate about it. There's generally uh, about two or three main different theories that were going on um, on why, why he wept. So generally pretty much all commentators and scholars would agree um, that when it says that he was let me look up the exact word um, it says something about him being troubled in his spirit i think may be the wording of it um, that actually the the real translation there should be angry uh, so yeah it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled that he was angry right there. And so the question is, what was he angry at? And the main theories are he was either angry at, at 
death in general, um, because death ruins the goodness of God's world. Um, he was possibly angry at sin that causes death. He may have been angry at unbelief, either the unbelief of the crowd around him who didn't realize that he had the power to raise Lazarus from death, um, or just unbelief in the world in general. I think those are probably the three primary things that people think he may have been angry at. And so it may have been him weeping because of his anger at one of those things. It may also be that the weeping was a, a separate disconnected thing from that, where he was weeping because he was experiencing compassion and empathy for these people who were uh, suffering at that time through the loss of their brother and their friend. Um, but some people think that that's not the case because um, he was about to raise him from the dead. And so crying over the death of his friend doesn't really make a ton of sense there. Uh, I honestly this week didn't dig a ton into that question because it wasn't something that we were going to discuss directly in the sermon. But those are the main theories about what people think was going on there and why he was angry and why he was weeping. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, the next question is, um, why isn't Jesus still physically with us now so that we can see him? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so at the Last Supper in John, I don't, he, he talks in chapters 14 and 16 about the Holy Spirit that was going to come. And he actually tells his followers, I'm going to leave you and I'm going to send your send to you a helper who's the Holy Spirit. And it's actually better for you that I go than that I stay. Um, and the, the, there's a couple things going on there of why it would be better for us for Jesus to not be here physically with us today than for him to be here physically with us today. One is that in Matthew chapter 28, it tells us that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And that uh, some of Paul's letters tell us that Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, he has been seated at the father's right hand, which means because Jesus is not physically here with us on earth today, he's in a position where he's ruling over all of the universe, over all of history and, and ensuring that God's plans get filled out, get completed. That's a lot of what we were looking at in our revelation series, if you were here in January and February with us. Um, so that's part of it. The second part is that after Jesus left, God sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, which means if, if Jesus was still on earth today, physically with us, that would be awesome. Like we could travel to where he was and go out and hear him speak at different events and stuff, but he would be limited to being in one place at one time. But because he has gone back to heaven and God's now sent the Holy Spirit to live inside us, God himself is with us, living inside us every moment of every day, wherever we are on the planet. And so in, in that level also, um, Jesus not being here physically with us today is to our benefit because God now lives inside us if we're his people, which is hugely impactful and powerful. Thanks for that, Eric. Um, we have time for one last question. Yeah. Um, the question is, do people who have different faiths 
and who have died without hearing about Jesus have a different judgment and what happens to them after death? Okay, that's a big question. We probably only have time to touch the surface of that here today. Um, and it's one that different people disagree on. But I think, um, I think one, it does seem from the Bible that we will be judged on some level based on what we know. Um, and so I think, I think on one level, someone who's heard about Jesus, been told about Jesus and just says, no, I'm not interested, probably will be judged more harshly than someone who's never heard about Jesus, never had the opportunity to respond. That being said, the Bible is also clear that everyone has the opportunity from just looking at creation, seeing that the world exists and there's order to it and structure to it, that that is meant to tell us there is a God and certain things about his character so that we can trust in him. But we're all blinded because of our sin and don't recognize what we're supposed to recognize when we look at the world. And so on one level, there's also no one who's completely without excuse, according to the Bible, uh, because we've all got the ability to see from the world around us that there is a God, that we're surrounded every day by people who are created in that God's image. Um, and so we have the opportunity to know that there's a God. Um, in terms of Yeah, so I think the one other comment I would make on this question is, I think sometimes um, this question can often come from a place of feeling like it's unfair of God to judge people who have never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus. Um, and I think that's probably a huge part of why God commands us to go tell others about Jesus. Um, you know, he, he, that's, one of the last things Jesus said before ascending back to heaven is go into all the world, make disciples, tell people about who I am, baptize them, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. Um, that's, that's something he's, that's why he left us here on earth and didn't just bring all of Christians to heaven. The moment we believe in him, because there's a world around us that doesn't know him and needs to. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's why, a big part of the reason why God left us here is so that we can share with those people so that they don't have to be in that situation on judgment day where they've never heard about Jesus. Thanks, Eric. Um, that's all the questions we have this morning. All right. And if I just want to add, if, if any, if anyone has any questions during the week about any sermon at any time, just, please feel free to message, you know, one of the elders, Colin or myself and Eric uh, would be happy to, to, to answer those questions for you. Yeah, definitely. We may 